Dear Grieve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. This time of year is often said to be thin, when our mundane sensibilities have easier access to our more spiritual ones. Thinking of one of the season's main feasts, Halloween, in a moment we'll hear about the history of demons from Dr Zohar Hadromi Alush. But first, on the 31st of October, 1517, legend has it that an Augustinian monk sparked a revolution by pinning his 95 theses, criticisms of the Roman church, to a church door in Wittenberg in Central Europe. Martin Luther was excommunicated for his actions as the Reformation took hold in Western Christianity. In advance of Reformation Day, we'll talk this evening about Luther's legacy, as well as his world-changing translation of the New Testament into German, which was published 500 years ago this year. Here this evening is Dr Art Hughes, Gaelic scholar at the University of Ulster. And Art, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Nice to be here, Siobhan. Martin Luther had a lot in common with other reformers, going back at least a century before him, um, people like Jan Hus, in that he wanted to make the church more of the people and curb the church's many monetary schemes that made a profit for priests at the expense of poor people. But he was distinctive in things that he wanted and did too, wasn't he? Very distinctive. I think that Luther himself, he was a big bulky man. He was a very, very introspective thinker. He couldn't be channeled in any way. His father, for example, wanted Luther to study law. But when Luther went to the University of Erfurt, he described it as a beer house and a hoor house. Mm. And then, again, like all great kind of uh, charismatic figures, he has this significant moment during the thunderstorm in 1505. He, is, he shelters in a cave and he cries out, help St Anna and I'll become a monk. And this, if you like, Centuries on, we have the Rock of Ages, uh, the 18th century English hymn. Mm. And it's almost one of these moments he has. So off he goes then, and he enlists with the uh, uh, Augustinians, and he becomes a priest then in 1507. And 10 years a priest, he then sees that in 1516, the, the Pope decides that they were going to refurbish this in Peter's Basilica in Rome. Peter, lie out Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church. So, uh, Johann Tetzel, a Dominican friar, is sent to uh, Germany to raise these funds by selling penal indulgences. So, in other words, you give money and then you get this absolution. Now, Luther was incandescent at this uh, suggestion and then it sounds very grand, 95 theses. You imagine like an MA thesis, 240 pages plus bibliography. <laughs> but in actual fact, these theses were long sentences or short paragraphs. And Luther then nails this to the cathedral door in Wittenberg. But what happens then is these are then subsequently printed in Latin and German and they go around all of Germany and 
great parts of Europe. So, like Luther had big ideas, but Luther also had the printing press revolution, and mm-hmm. that was the web of its day. So, things fell into place for Luther, and of course, later on in that century. Uh, Nostradamus was able to print his uh, prophecies. So we see that really coming from a manuscript tradition, which was slow and tedious and a a very slow um, percolation into public knowledge, the printing press really got the message out there and at speed. Tell us, Art, what was it like before the printing press? Well, before the printing press one relied upon the uh, manuscript tradition. And also before the printing press, you see, when when Luther went on the run, basically, after the his excommunication by Pope Leo in 1521, and he was outlawed in the Holy Roman Empire, he hides away in Fortberg Castle. And one of Luther's gripes was that a lot of the church business and liturgy was done through the medium of Latin. So Luther really wanted to have the the Christian in touch directly with the scriptures or the sola scriptura. And in his captivity in this castle in Wurtburg Castle, which I had the pleasure of going into the room uh, during a documentary I made about him five years ago, Luther translates the New Testament into German. And then, I mean, the Bible, it is a big book. So we get then a team of collaborators with Luther and they produce an entire Old and New Testament in German. And this new German Bible, it sets the foundation for modern German literature and kind of standard language. But 4,000 copies were produced and sold out like hotcakes in a very short space of time. So here you have, like, basically an early European bestseller. And Luther had the benefit of a printing tradition. And that's what really then catapulted the message to to, to the four corners of Germany and beyond. So we have a combination, don't we, of, um, if I hear you right, of he has a distinctive concern to allow people read the Bible themselves and, you know, it's not it's no longer only going to be high clergy and noble men. Um, yes. You know, he wants people to have access to the Bible and in their own language. But then this is made possible by this fabulous accident of timing that has the technology to allow him to do that. It does. And I mean, he, this also influences Tyndale's uh, English Bible, you know, uh, shortly thereafter. So we see that suddenly it makes Europe a smaller place. And so like of, a bit like the the Internet is said to have worked, made the world a smaller really, place. This really was the Internet of its day. This was, like, you can see that in the last 10 or 15 years how the internet has revolutionised our lives. Mm -hmm. And in terms of um, scriptural dissemination, this uh, willingness or or this um, desire to give ordinary people or, let's say, the 
literate middle classes direct access to the scriptures in their own vernacular was a mainstay of what Luther was about. And then we see that <clears throat> now he was not the first to 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 to, uh, to advocate this, as, as you've said at the start of the program. But the thing about Luther is when you got 4,000 Bibles printed in, you know, the early 16th century, that it's a massive uh, logistical achievement. Thinking, thinking of this new technology and what it enabled and the comparison to new technologies in, in our lifetime, in fact, just in the last 10 to 15 years, as you say, um, with the internet, are there cons as well as pros? And I'm thinking, you know, could you could you be the equivalent of trolled in the 16th century? Uh, I don't think so much that, but also we can say that Luther's New Testament in German was a very positive, lasting legacy of his printing life. We also see that he's a very strong anti-Semitic and one of the books he later publishes is The Jews and Their Lies. And he advocated the expulsion of Jews and the burning of synagogues. So we see that that legacy trails on to the early and mid 20th century. So we'll see that, you know, getting the message out was, it's a bit like artificial intelligence. The page doesn't know what's going to be on the page. Mm -hmm. So basically, the author has control over the content. And one of his publishing highlights was this New Testament in German and then his collaboration with his other colleagues to produce the entire Bible. But then we see later on that the Jews and their lies was not his most uh, glorious hour. No, and the influence, if you think of uh, the dominance of the Lutheran Church in Germany and the rise of Nazism in the 20th yes. century, one could argue that the, the, the con, the negative influence of Luther's views having such a wide audience had absolutely devastating consequences. And, and I think that this... Uh, the Jews and their lies is a sad, direct case in point. Yeah. You mentioned Tyndall, w William Tyndall. Yes. And, of course, there were various people all around Europe wanting a vernacular version of Scripture so that you didn't have to read Latin in order mm -hmm. to read it. Um, but also, given that most people, frankly, didn't read, it was more to have these texts so they could be spoken in in preaching, wasn't it? And in, in, in liturgical settings, so that they would be in the language of the people who were hearing them, like retelling stories in people's own language. Well, I mean, Luther himself was an experienced university teacher. He was a preacher. So, I mean, when you're preaching, you want the message to get across. So there must have been a massive switch off among the populace if who didn't speak Latin and these readings were uh, in Latin. Now, one example uh, in 20th century Ireland was in the, you know, the Latin mea culpa, mea culpa, mea mm -hmm. maxima culpa uh, from the Confitior. In Tyrone they said, smen colopach, smen colopach, I'm the heifer, I'm the heifer. <laughs> so we can see that really there was a kind of, there was a breakdown or a disjoin 
At the heart of Luther's theology is his interpretation of the verse from Romans, the righteous shall live by faith, meaning faith alone, by God's grace and not by works. What do you think Luther would have made of the title of our programme, The Leap of Faith? Well, I mean, say what you want about Luther. He was a contemplative, he was a theological scholar, he he. He studied the Bible in great detail. He cited his... So he knew the scriptures inside out. And I suppose that the name of the program may well have pleased him, but I wonder in the aftermath of hundreds of thousands of deaths, I would wonder what he would think about that. Dr. Art Hughes, Gaelic scholar at the University of Ulster, Thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you so much for having me, Siobhan. Next week, a conference will take place in Trinity College, Dublin, examining why demons fascinate us even to this day. A host of international experts will gather to discuss demons, good and bad. The event on the 27th and 28th of October is free to the public to attend. And here to talk about why demons still matter is Dr. Zohar Hadromiolouche, Assistant Professor in Islamic Studies at Trinity School of Religion, Theology and Peace Studies. And she's the organiser of this conference. Zohar, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. Would you tell us about this unusual conference and what you hope it will achieve? Well, this is a very um, international and interdisciplinary conference. We have 20 scholars from 12 countries, four continents, and a very broad variety of academic disciplines. And basically what we're going to uh, be talking about is the ambivalence and um, ambiguity of demons and the demonic. Usually, especially in Western culture, we think of demons as utterly evil. However, outside the Christian tradition and um, in more ancient um, traditions as well, we find this is a, there's a very large um, um, ambiguity and that they are actually morally ambivalent, very liminal creatures, and this is what we're going to highlight. What, what do you mean by liminal creatures? Okay. Um, liminal comes from limen, which is the doorstep. Um, it's a term that actually comes from anthropology. It was termed by Van Gennep in early 20th century and was reintroduced into academic discourse in the 1960s and 70s by Victor Turner. And basically, both of them were looking at rites of passage in life, for example, marriage, or um, from childhood to um, adolescence and uh, adulthood. And they noticed that there are three phases in such rites. First phase, the person is still in their old place in society. For example, person who is unmarried. Second phase is is this liminal phase. They are no longer uh, unmarried. They're no longer available. For example, they're engaged. So they're not available, but they're not yet married. married. And then the third phase... After you get married, you're married, that's it. So the first and third stages are very clear. There's no surprises. 
but the middle one, you're neither here nor there, so you're liminal, you're on the doorstep. And that's the dangerous phase because a lot can happen. You're disconnected and the liminal can, be, uh, can do instability to society, to the individual. However, and that's the ambivalent and tricky thing, there's also a huge potential here for change, for development, for growth. And that's basically what we're looking at now for demons who are actually inhabiting the, the liminal spaces um, in life. They are between the human and the divine. They are between the spiritual and the material in their essence and their characteristics. They inhabit the time of the day of dusk, according to Jewish and Muslim traditions. And that's, that's when they come in. And if we look, for example, at Halloween, which is taking place in a few days, it's this time of the year when we're moving from light to darkness, the days become very short. We're moving from harvest into the um, winter when there's nothing. So it's this movement between um, light and life to darkness and death when with this time of the year, which is truly liminal, and that's where the demons starting uh, to roam the world. And that's where we have um, uh, events like Halloween, very, very typical and characteristic of the season. So if, if demons are in fact liminal characters who can work for our betterment um, in the sense of change uh, that they can um, prompt, as you've just described it, why do we think of them as evil or to put it another way when were demons first demonized okay there's actually two levels here one of them the second part of your question is easier we can't say you know exactly on a specific date but we do see a very big movement to demonizations of demons and with the rise of christianity we know that the Greek word uh, daemon actually meant a spirit or a divine power, and it would indicate even divine inspiration. So they were really uh, ambivalent in terms of uh, ethics and morals. But um, with the emergence of Christianity, the belief that the demons or the spirits of the God inhabited the pagan um, shrines was turned into a belief that they, they were not just, um, you know, spirits of the God, but they were possessed with evil spirits, hence demons. And so it came, the word came to be identified um, with demonic evil beings. And this is something that, which is very strong, um, in particular in the Christian tradition. But um, we should also note that Already, you know, back then and in other um, religious or cultural traditions, demons are ambivalent, mm -hmm. meaning that, you know, you, can, you should not be trusting a demon. <laughs> um, if we look, we can learn from them. They have a lot of knowledge. If we think of Tinkerbell, she is the Tinker fairy. Think of her. Mm -hmm. You would imagine a fairy, no, nice flowers, wings. No, she's, you know, she's the girl with the screwdriver. <laughs> you know, it's not, mm -hmm. this is... This is knowledge, and this is, by the way, knowledge of, of um, 
um, working with metals is very typical um, to, to demonic beings. It was, um, and if we look at the elves in Lord of the Rings, with mm. the with their armor, they know how to work with the metals. We look at uh, the jinn in the Islamic and pre-Islamic tradition. We look at the uh, shadim of the Jewish tradition. They are the one, the ones who help King Solomon build the uh, the temple. At the same time, there's also the story of the king of um, of demons, Asmodeus, taking over Solomon's throne. You have to be very, very careful in Lord of the Rings. The pre-story, the prequel, is that um, the, um, the kings of humans and elves and dwarves, they came together with Sauron and they created rings using his powers, his knowledge, but he cheated them. He created the ring, the one ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. They did not know he did that. So they thought they were getting knowledge from him. But he, he did give them knowledge, but they were paying a price. There's always a price there. So it's mm-hmm. very tricky. And that's, that's why even, you know, if, even um, without the context of, of, um, of emergence of specific monotheistic tradition, demonic knowledge um, and demons in general, they, are always, they always remain ambivalent and therefore there's always danger there. Is Satan a demon? Is the devil a demon? That's a great question. <laughs> well, the scholars, <laughs> you know, the juries are still out. If we look, um, for example, from the perspective of Islam, in the Quran, it is said that when God created Adam, God um, ordered all the angels to prostrate themselves to the new creature, and they all, all obeyed by Iblis. And for this, God accursed Iblis, and he basically threw him out of heaven, and he became um, Satan. And later, this Satan is the person who um, tempts even Adam to eat of the forbidden fruit and gets them expelled as well. So he seems to be an angel, a fallen angel. But at the same time, um, it is also said that Iblis, when he refused to prostrate himself, was among the jinn. So he was one of the demons. And the jinn, according to the Quran, are created from smokeless fire. But according to Muslim um, dogma, the angels were created from light. And according to Muslim dogma, angels cannot sin. So there's, there's, a, big, um, there's a big discussion there. If he was created, if it was from among the jinn and created from fire, which is what the Quran says, then perhaps he was a jinn. But if he were not an angel, then why would the command to the angel apply to him? Mm. So, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, this is part mm. of this liminality and ambivalence of mm. Satan in Islam. Would it be fair to say that most of the depictions of demons that we see in film and other popular media are following the, the Christian model? That is, that evil is out there and other and a threat rather than something that we navigate a, an accommodation with. I think this would, would have been true to a large extent um, for a while, but I think in recent decades we see uh, a much more balanced and um, complex 
image of uh, of demons and the demonic in mm. the popular culture and in films in particular. So if we think about Despicable Me and the minions, what are minions? You know, what, what are they looking for? And they turn out to be so adorable. Even Gru himself, he's a villain. He's still a villain, but now he's harnessed into better, um, you know, to, 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 to achieve better goals. Um, if we look at Hotel Transylvania, which I think is, is a great, um, you know, has this really great message of that the different is not necessarily evil, which we often tend to identify. The two, um, if we think of even the sixth sense, with ghosts are not so much um, hunting, but they're hunted themselves. And uh, one of my, actually, my one of my favorite um, films is uh, is Shrek, and there we see the opposite example. Usually, we think of fairies as nice and cute and flowers and all good and tooth fairies, la la la. But look at this fairy godmother. She's really cheeky. She's actually not just cheeky. She's evil. You know, um, she's she's trying to to cheat everyone to get her own way. Um, not very nice at all, and and in this sense, she is much more like um, the fairies, which are not from Disney, but are more from um, the Irish and Scottish fairy tales. If we think of um, of fairies that you know you don't really want to meet them in a dark alley. In seeing the adverts for this conference. I have made the mistake of thinking that the choice was going to be between demons good or bad, but I now really understand better the title of the conference, which is Demons Good and Bad, because more often than not, from what you've told us, they are good and bad all at the same time. I would I would think so, and I would say that, um, uh, yeah, when we speak of demons, I think we often um, reflect our perceptions of humanity. And, yeah, I would think that... Um, I, I would think that many people, myself, of course, included, would have good and um, and more evil sides to them. Um, so we have to negotiate, first of all, with ourselves, but also with our environment. So regardless of the, you know, actual physical existence of demons, I think the very concept is important for us to understand and to realize. And again, the, the matter of hope, that when we realize that it's really um, yin and yang, as in the um, logo of the conference, that there's always, always a place for hope. Uh, but then again, if, if something looks absolutely wonderful, you know, there's no nothing bad in it, I would suspect. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Zohar Hadromia Lush, thank you very much for joining us on the Leap of Faith. Thank you. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening. The Leap of Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Dave Gibson. The researcher is Sinead Kennedy. The broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland. And the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. You can email the program on faith at rte.ie.